Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Welcome to the BIOS Podcast. I'm Jimmy Tian. We're very lucky to have Tony Kulesa on the podcast. Tony is a co-founder of Petri, an accelerator in Boston that backs companies developing new biotech applications and technologies in healthcare, food, industrial chemicals, and new materials. Tony completed his PhD at MIT, where he developed a new platform for rapidly testing drug combinations to overcome antibiotic resistance, and for exploring relationships between species within bacterial communities such as the human gut microbiome. While at MIT, Tony was co-founder and director of Biomed Startup and was co-founder at MIT Biomakers, among various other positions. In this conversation, we talk about accelerators and life sciences, entering life sciences industry from academia, the intersection of technology and biology where Silicon meets Boston, and the profile of new funds that straddle both philosophies, and finally, investing and building during this life sciences revolution. The conversation is between Tony, myself, and Chaz Polito, general partner at Alix Ventures. Tony, thanks for joining our podcast here at BIOS. Grateful to have you on as a, a guest today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and Petri? Sure. Um, let me first say just like how excited I am about the community you guys are building. I think there's clearly a, a huge latent need for this. Um, I think it's worldwide. And I, I think it's great that you're bringing together investors, um, entrepreneurs, and other followers of the space um, into you know the podcast, into media. And I think that there's huge opportunities um, you know, as people leverage their, like the knowledge that's siloed across all the different people in the industry towards new opportunities. Um, so just applaud you guys um, as a community builder myself, like in, in, in making this effort. Yeah. Um, so to tell you about myself, so I uh, see like the purpose of my life to bring uh, change with biology, you know, essentially make biology one of the driving forces of innovation uh, in the 21st century. And a lot of that comes from inspiration from my grandfather, actually, who was an electrical engineer before there was such a thing as electrical engineer. He was actually a physicist or trained in physics um, before there was such a discipline. And he had a really amazing life um, and had the opportunity to work on projects with NASA. He was, he was, a, he was a control engineer um, and, you know, saw like the whole arc of how electronics and computers, you know, accelerated so much transition through, through his life. Uh, and he still, you know, continues to be at the forefront. Like I get emails from him all the time about, advances in like quantum information theory and cosmology and um you know and, and i when i was in college i started to think about like well what what do i want to do with my life you know i really wanted to work i really wanted to work on something that had the opportunity or had the potential to make the same kind of changes to the 21st century that had impacted life so much in the 20th century and to me like the place with the most uh the, you know with the most potential is biology i mean if you think about it biology really permeates every aspect of life uh, of course, because it's what we're made from, but also all the materials, like the dyes in our clothing, the, the materials of our clothing, the, this wood table I'm sitting at, the chair, uh, you know, so much of, of what we have, the food, it all comes from biological systems. And as we learn to manipulate these systems, um, you know, we've really unlocked like a, a new layer of technology, a new layer of like the universe's source code um, that we have access to. And so 
I just got really motivated um, to, to steer my life in that direction. And, and I'm, I mean, I love being in the lab. I, uh, I used to say like, you know, if I was a billionaire, uh, I would just stay in grad school forever. Um, but like, it started to become clear to me that I could make a, I could make a larger impact by being a force multiplier for other people than by like pursuing my own ideas right now. Um, and so I, you know, I, 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 I still spend some of my own time on you know, my own projects, but, but really since about 2014, um, while I was doing my PhD at, at MIT, uh, I started to think about like, how could I best enable other people? And a lot of it was through uh, you know, seeing where the translation of technology out of academia was, um, it was frictional. Because um, I had made some inventions during my own PhD um, in, in infectious disease and in antibiotics discovery that I really wanted to bring to bear on the problem is that technology uh, that worked at scale, uh, we were able to d discover some pretty attractive uh, candidates that I wanted to start to advance towards clinic. And I started thinking about how could I start a company here and realize just how little support there was for, for that process um, and ended up finding a lot of other like-minded people at MIT who are PhD students or postdocs who had their own inventions or discoveries that they wanted to see really brought out into impact the world and were had the same kinds of barriers in front of them. So I you know, teamed up with a bunch of them to form student groups, um, classes, a lab space, and so on to just enable um, that kind of work. And that's where I think I really found my groove. It's where I found like where I think I'm the biggest lever on the world and, and how I got into uh, creating Petri uh, after, you know, soon after that. Could you tell us a little bit about what Petri does and how it came together? Sure. Um, so you know, while, while I was at MIT, right, I said I, I had created these, I, you know, I co-created these student groups, classes, um, a lab space, community, and I think we'd done a great job of that on, at MIT. We'd done a, similar things that happened at many other universities uh, around the world. But what's missing is really that next step. Like, after you really go out into the world, you commit to starting a company, there is really this, this void of support. Um, and that's come from a couple of different reasons. I mean, first, most of the biotech venture community has converged upon this venture creation model where they really build the companies and, and fund them themselves. And they don't invest in really early stage entrepreneurs. Um, and that's really left a void that the tech community has largely stepped into. Uh, but, you know, they, they, they're, they're learning, but they, you know, there's a lot of experience that can be brought to bear to help these, um, these entrepreneurs. And I think that's, that's really created a gap where, you know, you have people working in the life sciences without this kind of community and, and support and culture around them. Um, and so that's what we've tried to solve with Petri. And so Petri is a, a Boston-based startup accelerator uh, dedicated to companies at the intersection of biology and engineering that we've, we've actually co-created with a number of prominent founders, um, entrepreneurs, executives from companies that we see as the really, really remarkable companies across the life sciences, whether it's in health or in food and agriculture, synthetic biology, materials. Um, and they work with our, our founders um, as advisors and collaborators. And in addition to bringing that, that community of people um, together, you know, we also provide funding, um, lab space, and we've just tried to make the transition to starting those companies as frictionless as possible. Yeah, so you talked about wanting to be a force multiplier, and that is what you're doing at Petri, because over the years, it's become easier and easier to start a company. And as you said, this happened early on in the tech industry, where platforms made it easier for entrepreneurs to start companies with minimal capital and small teams. So how about in biotech? Could, could you talk a bit about just kind of zooming out how platforms have made it easier to build companies and how you see this playing forward? Sure, yeah, I think it comes up often, right? The, the contrast or you know, the difference in philosophies between 
the tech industry and the biotech industry and where the biotech industry is headed, you know, where what we've seen in the past 20 years in tech and so on. And, and I think, you know, a lot of the contrast between these two industries stem from, uh, they, they stem from terminology that might no longer apply. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you really like look back in history, um, 1976 was the year that both Apple and Genentech were founded. And, you know, Genentech really marks the birth of the biotech industry. And it was founded by Bob Swanson, along with her Boyer, when, when Bob was, was 29 years old. And although Genentech, you know, is, the, is a landmark, seminal uh, biotech company, it's a therapeutics company, really their core innovation was about manufacturing, right? Like their first product was in human growth hormone. Um, it was something that was sourced from cadavers. Like the, the medical need was, was proven. The way to treat it was proven. Um, really, their innovation was a way of producing human growth hormone and microbes using recombinant DNA. Um, and so even though ultimately they became a therapeutics company, they're really a manufacturing company. Um, and I think like, you know, now over the, maybe the past few decades, biotech has mostly come to mean just like therapeutics companies. It's come to mean companies where most of the risk is in how the biology links to some pathology in humans and the risk can't be discharged until there's like the, you know, you see the full arc of clinical trials with a huge amount of time and capital invested. Uh, but, you know, in parallel, we've seen the confluence of, of engineering and biology, and that's opened up a huge space of possibilities of what can be achieved. Like, yes, in therapeutics, but also in some of these other areas in, in, in food and agriculture, materials, manufacturing, and even in health outside of therapeutics, you have diagnostics and so on. And I think, like, you know, many of these companies will look like today's therapeutics companies or today's biotech companies as conventionally defined, but many more of them look like uh, 1976 Genentech, where they're really making a zero to one innovation um, using a, a biological technology in a new way. Um, and they're building a company that's never been built before. And so I think that that's really created like a new set of opportunities uh, that will you know, demand new models, new platforms for creating these companies and so on. That's, that's a really interesting idea. That, so like Genentech starting out as just basically being really good at manufacturing, because I think now if you look at big pharma, a lot of innovation actually doesn't come from their internal pipelines. And instead, they just work with partners or acquire other companies. And they mostly then become a vehicle for regulatory, for marketing, distribution, things like that. So in a sense, it's, it's maybe not that different from, from what's happened before, where instead of just manufacturing it, now you're just getting what's manufactured out there to all the patients. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, we've seen this, this um, unbundling, you know, per se, of, of how that industry functions, where those companies, what they're really great at doing is carrying out those later stage clinical trials and then ultimately bringing these drugs to market. Um, and I think this, I, you know, we'll have to go back and look at the exact numbers, but, you know, more than half of biologics that are marketed are, are sourced externally these days, or maybe that are in development. And I think that's a trend that will only continue. So it'll open up all kinds of, of new opportunities for companies to plug in to the drug discovery process, um, you know, essentially creating a whole new industries there. So if, if you were running a big pharma company, how would, what would you do? let's say the coming 30, 40 years, how would you approach this model? Well, I think, I, you know, I think with most of what they're doing is headed in the right direction. They often have multiple, you know, sometimes multiple arms that are investing in, in different areas strategically, um, you know, uncoupled from the, from the, from the internal strategy of, of the firm. And I think that's the best way that they can explore new opportunities, whether they're new therapeutic areas or, or new ways of, of coupling um, different approaches into their existing pipeline. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's it's almost to me sounds like they're an accelerator for like way later stages. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's one way of thinking about it. So for the founders in the audience, can you tell them why they should join an accelerator like yours, but also just in general? Yeah, I think there's there's a few different reasons, right? And you think about it like like why why to go to college? Why do why do people go to like Harvard, Stanford, uh, or MIT? 
And I think there's, there's a couple of reasons, but it's not really about the classes, right? Like MIT started putting their classes online uh, two years ago. I mean, sorry, two decades ago. And uh, it's really about the peer community. It's about, it's about the badge of honor. Um, it's about the peer community. And it's about all the doors that it opens up for you, um, whether that's you know, mentors or funding or um, just being able to uh, be connected to the best service providers. Um, you know, have, being part of, of one of these communities, is, it, can, it can really be a multiplier on the kinds of progress that you can make just by opening up so many doors for you and, and for having so many peers to learn from. Yeah, Tony, totally echo the sentiment there. Uh, one of the big things for me when I went through Y Combinator, uh, I just felt like I had 150 peers that were running some of the fastest laps at the earliest stages. And to, to see what that was side by side of how our journeys compared to theirs and also the, the wealth of network um, of knowledge that came through that. Uh, you're one connection removed from pretty much anyone and everyone you wanted to know. And uh, I think that to me, is probably one of the biggest catalysts in my career now, and uh, one of the reasons why we started Alix Ventures is to build a community that was representative of kind of what the YC experience was for us, um, but at the early stages focused on healthcare life sciences. Yeah, and that's why I applaud so much of what you're doing with the bios community here. I mean, I think this has really been a huge void in the bio community. Um, in some ways, I think that tech, you know, tech media stepped into that, but it's, it's really, uh, like I mentioned, left a, a lot of the experience and people from, from bio out of that community, and, and really we need to build our own. Tony, you talked a little bit from the founder perspective just now, but now switching over to the investor side, what are you looking for from, from new early stage companies as you run your accelerator? And do you have any calls for startups to solve particular needs? Yeah, so that, that's a question we get a lot. And I think it, it really comes down to some simple things when it's so early. I mean, for in terms of evaluating ideas, it needs to be something where you can prove the superiority of the approach fairly quickly. Um, you know, if it's, if it's something where you really won't be able to discharge risk until like a phase three clinical trial, then it's not something that I think uh, most, most early founders can be successful at. They need to be able, like if you look at the case of Genentech, just to go back to that, right, it's like very clear they can, when they can produce human growth hormone from a microbe. Um, and so we really look for opportunities where you can quickly prove the superiority of the technology. Um, we also look where there is a team that we think is magnetic, will be able to recruit other people, will be able to raise money, um, and will really be uh, able to attract lots of the resources that will be needed to, to um, you know, see the full arc of the company. So uh, really it comes down to the team, um, the, whether the idea can be proven quickly, whether it can be protected, because one of the things that's unique about this, you know, these markets is the value of IP, and a weak team with strong IP can, can really beat you. Um, and so the IP is another important component. And last, you know, whether we think that there's a real market opportunity. And I think that that would be, you know, the same if you're investing in, in any, you know, in any space. And Tony, to piggyback off that, is there anything at Petri that y'all do not touch or prefer to, to stay away from just for our audience that full context here as well? No, I, th I think we, you know, we, we really look, um, we really scope things pretty widely. Um, and, you know, just to get back to one of Jimmy's questions, like, do we have calls for any startup, in, any kind of startup in particular? Well, I, you know, I would say, like, that's a question we get a lot. Um, and it's, often, it's, it's hard to answer because, like, really the most interesting companies, if I look in our first batch, are the ones that we've never heard of before. Um, and so, like, the best thing I can say is, like, the most successful ones are the ones where we haven't heard of it before. Uh, and that, I appreciate that it doesn't give people much guidance. Terrific. And Tony, you're kind of talking about kind of the first batch of Petrie here. And one of the big things like Alix is you have a phenomenal network of supporting advisors. Can you talk kind of about the philosophy of what you built that with and how some of those advisors uh, roll up your sleeves and really help your companies? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of it is inspired by the success of, of the academic model of producing great scientists, right? Like it's really, this is about apprenticeship. Um, 
and working, being able to work with people that have been in your shoes and succeeded at the same kinds of challenges can be not only inspiring, but really like they're the only people that can give you the kinds of advice that you need. Um, and so we've really tried to import like that kind of apprenticeship, um, you know, mentorship type model into entrepreneurship by, you know, being able to work with people that have built great companies that you might look at and look and say as inspiration for the kind of company that you yourself would build. It's really interesting that you bring up the model of apprenticeship and, and academia because I think that's a huge difference between biotech and tech is the role of academia. Traditionally, most people in biotech, biopharma had gone through a long academic career. And of course, people without those degrees can also build incredible companies. You've gotten your PhD at MIT. You, you've been through that. So do you have any advice for people coming into the startup or investing world from academia? We affectionately like to call this transition PhD to OMG. So curious if you have any comments on kind of how to best prepare yourself for that big leap to make. <laughs> I, love, I love the PhD to OMG. <laughs> um, well, for, you know, before I answer that, I do want to highlight that I, I think a lot of people think that you need a PhD to, to be successful in biotech. And I think there are plenty of counterexamples to that. Like, again, to go back to Genentech for like the third time, Bob Swanson was not a PhD. He partnered up with her Boyer, right? Um, even like Moderna, the CEO of Moderna is the, like arguably one of the you know, most interesting and successful companies right now does, does not have a PhD. And I think that, you know, a PhD is really only as meaningful as, as three letters. And it really doesn't mean that the kind of person that you are and the kinds of things you can engage with, the kind of experience that you have. Um, but outside of that, like, okay, so what is, what kind of advice would I have for people that are transitioning out of academia? Um, well, the first thing I would say is like, really go find great mentors. Like that's the fastest way that you can learn. And I think the one, the thing that's, that's been surprising and really amazing about, um, the, the whole industry since I started getting interested in this during my PhD was like how flat it is. It's really been super easy to engage with many of the, many of the figures, um, in the industry that you would that you would have thought would be inaccessible. People really do want to pay it forward. And I think that probably comes from the fact that as much as, you know, there's the natural forces of market competition, people really do, really are motivated by trying to work on real problems. And it's, it's a feeling of shared camaraderie and, and um, that, you know, really in, in health, this is about the patients or it's about sustainability where, you know, people, these are really difficult companies to start and people don't get into it unless they have some other reason for doing what they're doing. They really do want to help the next generation. Um, so I would first say like, you know, use that, go find great mentors. Um, another thing, another piece of advice I'd have for, for people that are, um, you know, graduating from their PhD is that look way outside yourself for resources. Often we see a lot of PhDs that uh, they really, you know, they invented something or they discovered something in their PhD and that's what they want to bring forward and they never really look outside of that. And I think one of the challenges is to really develop like a much wider perspective on what is all, what are all the interesting things going on and where can your skills be applied and and you know, maybe your, the work that you've done in your PhD is what you want to start the company with, but there's possibly other pieces of IP or other people that are outside your network that you should bring to bear to work with you. Um, or you may find that like, your skills can just be better applied on a different problem you hadn't thought of before. Um, and so I you know, really encourage people to take a step back and think about the bigger picture rather than focusing on just their individual piece of technology and how it can be commercialized. Just following up on a, on a point that you made where it's not necessary to have all these fancy advanced degrees, and, and that's definitely true. So for people who choose to forego those academic programs, do you have advice for them so that they can still build all the skills and the relationships that, that they would need? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best thing... Join an accelerator? <laughs> we, you know, we get, we get a lot of people um, interested, you know, often successful entrepreneurs in other spaces or, uh, you know, people that are interested to enter the life sciences is such an exciting area. 
And the best advice I can give to them is go volunteer with some fraction of your time in a biology lab um, or, you know, or at a young startup like that are growing at, at, you know, accelerators like Petri. And I think that you can like see this example of many really successful people doing this, right? Like, so Eric Lander, um, the way that he got into biology where he was actually, I think, teaching at HBS and looking for, this was after completing his PhD in math, uh, really like looking for what he wanted to spend the next phase of his career on and just started volunteering in David Botstein's lab. And that's like how he learned about genetics and how he started to understand the opportunities of the Human Genome Project and ultimately brought you know, his, his way of thinking from a mathematical point of view, better strategies for mapping the human genome. And so that's something I've encouraged lots of entrepreneurs um, who are interested to get in this space is like, go to, you know, go to the best institutions you can find and just go find people that you can volunteer with for a year, you know, bring your skills to bear on their problems, learn about the, you know, learn from them about the space, learn what kind of challenges they face. And that's like the best way you're going to discover new opportunities and things to work on. Could not agree more with that, Tony. Um, the year before I started Alix, I probably spent about 80% of my time with PhDs, and I'd just sit down with them, their founders of early companies, kind of learning what are their struggles, kind of building empathy with some of the things that they've um, experienced that transition from academia and understanding what are the different nuances of their particular venture and just sitting down, buying them coffee and teaching them some of the aspects of business and swapping that knowledge back and forth and um, later became what is today Alix Ventures through that. It's a really important thing to do. I think you know, often we see with like, it, it just, I'm not, I don't mean to say, uh, to label these people as, as MBAs, because um, I don't think an MBA is necessary either. But I mean, just, just uh, you know, if we, if we say PhDs and we say MBAs, like, I feel like a lot of people, you know, they will often build businesses that are like, um, alcohol delivery companies or something, right? It's because it's like, if you're, unless you're operating on the forefront of technology, you really don't know where the front frontier of interesting opportunities are. And so the best thing you can do is just spend time with people whose skill sets like, you really complement. Um, and learn from them about where the, the boundary of, of like new opportunities and, and new sciences and try and build businesses from that. And that's something that I really learned from a mentor of mine, you know, Russ Wilcox at, at Pillar, um, who is just a, an amazing um, frontier tech entrepreneur and built E-Inc uh, and, and companies in, in nuclear energy and, and therapeutics and, and in lots of different spaces. And I think he's just one of the best people I've ever met who doesn't come himself from a technical background, but he can sit down with any scientist and um, you know, really is just like one of the most curious people and has learned a tremendous amount about all these different areas of technology and opportunity and brought his own business skills to bear about how to build great companies in these spaces. I absolutely agree with that. And uh, I say for myself, someone who has a minimally technical background, that's more through my learning myself. Uh, I feel like once you understand kind of this, the different spaces you're, you're navigating in, um, you then kind of start delving into what are the practical applications. I think that's where the playing field becomes level and doesn't matter what advanced degree you have or what your prior background is. It's how does X plus Y translate to Z and how does Z ultimately impact the world? And we can understand um, that through the lens kind of how we look at with Adelix with effective altruism and the practical map to get there. Um, it's just now a matter of do you think that founder can put the pieces in forward motion to, to stack what ultimately hopefully will be a skyscraper. These are really important discussions in the life sciences because in academia, there, there's very traditional hierarchical structure. In medicine, I would argue that might be even worse, right? It's all about how many letters you have after your name. So being able to find the right way to connect people, regardless of the, the degrees they have, but based on the ideas and how they can actually move the field forward, I think that really is key. And there's a little bit of a cultural gap, I think, between the industry side and maybe the academic or medical side that does need to be bridged. Well, I mean, I just, I'll just say another reason why the communities that we're trying to build um, are so important is really just enabling you know, people to, to make new connections, to meet new people, 
to avoid the biases of their own social network um, and you know to really plug people with different skill sets together into into, into uh, you know solving big problems. Love it, and and that's also actually a really important way that we can enhance diversity of founders of investors in the industry. And and so I, I do think that what you're doing at Petri, what BIOS is doing, is great for that reason as well. What we're really doing here with with Alix and BIOS is we're funding the next generation of companies, and ultimately through that, the next generation of investors and the diversity of the founders we get to work with from background and skill set um, to breadth and depth of companies um, ultimately will enable this next generation. And uh, I think folks like us on the forefront of that um, ultimately will help catalyze what the future face of biotech looks like. It just might be uh, a fun cycle or two removed from where we are right now. Topic I've been discussing with a lot of VCs here on the West Coast lately is, let's say, Series B, Series C scale. Um, we talk about tech meets bio, what does that mean? What are you validating? I think that's what uh, a question we've been curious about and looked at it from a platform point of view and saying companies like Recursion or Lab Genius or others at Series B, Series C, when they've reached scale, are they validating platform approach and that they're able to come to reproduce through a technical underpinning the same reproducible result? Or are you validating kind of biology? I think that's what we're perhaps talking about East and West Coast differences of philosophies, what do you validate when you reach scale, particularly in the context of platforms and how tech is enabled? Mm. Uh, Chaz, let me make sure I understand your, what you're saying there. So when you're, you're talking about validating, uh, maybe you could just expound upon that for a second. So you're talking about when you, when you really reach scale and what, what, do you, what do you feel like Lab Genius is, is validating? Yeah, I, I guess to, to speak further, um, what you think about when companies are approaching the clinic and saying have reached kind of what I call phase two clinical efficacy, um, their pipelines validated. Is it the pipeline is validated and it's a biological approach to validation or is it the platform is validated and the platform is able to produce a pipeline that has the same underpinnings as the assets that have reached efficacy is kind of how I think about it. I see. Well, I guess, I mean, the way that I would think about any one of these platforms, essentially a platform technology, to be clear, you know, you, you, have, you have the technical risk, the biological risk, you, the clinical risk, and the market risk, right? Um, the technical risk is whether, like, whether the platform actually generates an asset that addresses the problem. Um, the biological risk is, and, and essentially the clinical risk are about how the, the biological hypothesis is ultimately tied to the disease. So if you actually do, um, if, if, you know, if your drug works as intended, like do you actually rescue the pathology or not? Um, and then there's the market risk, which is like, you know, assume all these things are true. You have something, it works. Does it sell? Is it a large enough market um, where, you know, you've essentially validated yourself as a business? Um, and I think like, you know, with the thing about therapeutics is like you, you really do move these through these things in a very clear stepwise fashion that allow you to, you know, very clearly hit value inflections that, you know, the early preclinical stages, it is really about that technical risk at the clinical stages. It's really about that biological and clinical risk. And at the markets, really the market risk, what you don't want to do is get to the point where you're at those later stages and there's still lots of market risk. And so really the strategy when you're building any one of these platforms is to try and minimize any of the clinical and market risk that comes downstream and focus hundred percent on just the, um, you know, just the technical risk. Uh, and then once that's validated, once you've validated the platform and you, you have brought it at Chaz, as you said, you brought it down to say phase two efficacy. Um, then, it, you know, you can really start to think about opening up to 
new opportunities where maybe there's less of a proven market and maybe therefore a larger market. Um, and so that's where you often see with these platform technologies, a strategy where you focus on a really clear, homogenous, genetically, um, you know, monogenic conditions um, where it's, you can clearly recruit patients. There's a clear biomarker that you can measure. Um, there's a proven market that you can sell into. Um, but maybe it's not as large of a market as, as some other opportunities. And so it allows you to discharge some of that earlier risk. Once that's removed, you can move on to bigger opportunities. That was a great answer. Uh, I, I think just to phrase it differently, like non and obvious, and I kind of talk about this topic all the time, it's like there's West Coast platforms and East Coast platforms. And when you reach clinical efficacy, what do you actually end up validating? And I think the difference between um, East Coast platforms and West Coast platforms is East Coast, you validate a biological approach. Um, in West Coast, you validate a technological approach to your platform and I see. through computation I see. primarily. And that's where you're able to reproduce the same result with further assets in your pipeline based on a technological advantage um, versus East Coast, you are able to reproduce assets based on the biology or repurpose the biology you validated to other indications. Uh, I think that's kind of the way I think about it. And there's the risk of like indication selection, which is largely why you've seen a lot of just West Coast investors biased to rare disease, which is the fastest, cheapest way to get through the clinic. Or you've seen them go for the big blockbuster stuff. And if they, let's say one or two deviations off the mark in oncology, oh, what a, what a shame. You landed in a multi-billion dollar market. There's, not, there's a lot of room for error. Um, versus other things you might look into like autoimmune disease. The market might not be as big if you're one or two deviations off from what you actually end up planning to do. Um, and that's where kind of indication selection, I feel, is something that West Coast VCs have not yet, for the most part, been able to grapple and wrap their head around. Uh, do, I, do I actually take a risk on perhaps like overall market or standard of care or kind of elevating that through what I just achieved with this platform um, versus saying I'm betting on technology and I'm betting on the delta that my platform is going to improve my odds of reaching um, an FDA approval is 10, 15, 20%, whatever it ends up being. Um, that's where people I think are betting on the platform is increasing the odds of FDA approval. Not my platform is um, validating biology that is previously um, not linked, not approved, not uh, widely accepted. Yeah. I, I'm glad I followed up with you because that, that was much clearer. And, and um, I agree with everything you're saying, except for the East West coast differentiation. Um, I think there's, you know, there's plenty of examples of both coasts of companies where the, you know, the main risk is in some really new biology that could uh, have implications on a number of different indications. And a lot of the strategy is in that early indication selection that allows you to prove out the biology. Um, but, you know, there's also plenty of examples where it's really about uh, a, new, a, new, a new therapeutic approach and that's highly scalable and can be widely applied. I mean, Moderna is the classic example of that that's in everybody's uh, that's in everybody's minds these days, right? Where once they've really proven the approach that they can deliver mRNA into the cytoplasm and like, you know, then that's, uh, that's essentially validated the, the technology, you know, they can, they can produce it at scale. They can repurpose their manufacturing infrastructure um, very quickly to, to new areas. And so they can, um, you know, once they've stood up like the, the whole pipeline, uh, maybe that's not the right word, once they've stood up the whole uh, platform, you know, they can, they can essentially repurpose it into new indications very quickly. And so I think like that's, an, you know, another, that's an example on the other side where really the, the, the risk that's is validating biological and, you know, risk are not technological risk. Uh, I guess maybe that's where I'm differing with you on biological versus the definitions, because I, that I would have called technological risk. Um, whereas biological risk, I would, I, I would define as 
how the biology is ultimately linked to the pathology. So you have some new discovery about like the etiology of the disease that you want to drug. And the real test of that can only happen in the clinic, which I think is just a different kind of strategy. You might take a, <coughs> a conventional approach with a small molecule or biologic um, to develop against a you know, new target, for example. And so that's, that's like a different class of company than um, that. Yeah. And so maybe we're just talking about the same things and using different words. We've obviously lived through a technological revolution that's changed the world. And many have said the next revolution, which has already begun, is the life sciences revolution. So how would you categorize this? Is this a fundamental revolution over the arc of humanity? And what will it do for the future? <laughs> I love this question because it's essentially, you know, why I've dedicated my life to this uh, pursuit. Uh, and I think that, you know, the really amazing thing about biology is that biological systems span more than 10 orders of magnitude of scale, right? Like you have everything from the atomic level uh, all the way up to whole ecosystems, or at least like meter scale organisms, right? At, at minimum, we could say. Um, and I think, you know, our, our <clears throat> we've, we've been fundamentally limited by our ability to interface with biological systems. And like, what do I mean by that? I mean, our ability to control and, and to measure them. So if you think about, you ask like the arc of humanity, right? Or the, the arc of history. So um, really our only way for interfacing with biological systems for a very long time was through breeding, right? That was our only way that we could manipulate the, the source code of the system was through selective breeding. And in fact, that's still, you know, one of the ways that we interface with biology today. Um, but like the real revolution that we've seen in the past six decades or so has been step-by-step uh, step being able to build interfaces to each new layer, each other layer of the system. So first, you know, with the heroic age of molecular biology, being able to, we, we unravel genetic code, right? So we get access to uh, DNA and, and we understand the central dogma. We understand how to move, the, how to read and, and write things at the molecular level, even if it wasn't achieved. And it took a few decades for us to synthesize the first gene, for us to, um, you know, for, for common DNA technology to be invented and, and so on. And that allowed us to, to take control of those systems. But now we're, you know, we're like advanced a few decades, we're able to read whole genomes. There's been like a uh, 10 million fold drop in the cost of DNA sequencing. We're, we're starting to converge on being able to write genomes, both at like the oligomer scale, as well as engineer genomes with, with genome engineering technologies and, and the, um, our ability to do that are, are kind of meeting in the middle to rewrite whole genomes. Um, similarly, we can read and write cells, right? Like we're able to do full transcriptomics, proteomic maps of cells. We can do it in space. We're starting to be able to do it in time, maybe. Um, similarly, like we're now using those technologies to learn how to control cell state. So we can, um, you know, use the same kinds of genome engineering technologies repurposed to actually program transcription to achieve a desired cell state. And you see companies popping up um, that can, you know, differentiate a, a cell into any tissue, right? Um, we can controlled, we can read and write the behavior of single-celled organisms, right? The whole field of synthetic biology and being able to program microbes or being able to program immune cells. Um, we're starting to read and write whole organs, right? You have this, all these advances in um, organoid engineering, being able to map cell types in tissue, in situ, like in space, being able to understand developments and then being able to program the genomes of organoids that can model the same kind of development, being able to print the cells in certain locations and stick them together in interesting ways. Um, and so like, it's been just this, um, amazing time where, where in the, you know, in a very short amount of time, we've been able to build new interfaces at each layer of these biological systems, which is only going to unlock our opportunities to control, you know, as I like to say, like we've, we've, we've really gained access to the source code of the universe, um, uh, of, of so many aspects of, of life, right? 
like if you think about the 20th century as, as getting access to the, the source code of physics, right? The 21st century is getting access to the source code of biological systems. Um, and, you know, the most creative people I know are starting to think about what does this mean at like even planetary scales? Um, I'm starting to think about how do you use biology to do large scale carbon sequestration or how do you make Mars livable? So I think the, the consequences are, are enormous. The opportunities are enormous and it's just an incredibly exciting time. I agree, man. This, this is the, the century of biology and it's incredibly exciting. And, and this decade will be incredibly exciting, but obviously we started out this decade with COVID-19. So how has the pandemic impacted the funding ecosystem, specifically the impact on life sciences as compared to what's happened in other sectors? Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's still pretty early to tell what the impacts of this will be in terms of, uh, you know, the funding ecosystem in the short term. Of course, uncertainty creates conservatism, right? Um, so the data I think that we're seeing so far, uh, it's, it's, been, you know, it's been much harder to fundraise. It maybe continue to get much harder to fundraise. Uh, what does that mean on, like, that means on, like, the monthly timescale? What does it mean on the yearly timescale? I think many funds have announced new funds recently. I think really the world's attention has shifted towards biotech as an area of, um, you know, of great importance and of great opportunity. Um, the thing about crises is it's, it's really hard, you know, when you, it's really hard to get institutions and individuals to change their behaviors until there's a crisis. And so now all of the ideas that people have had about ways to change the healthcare system, ways to change, um, you know, even everything from the FDA to, um, healthcare system to everything like it, it's it's ripe for change and people are now desperate for change right and so we're going to see long-lasting changes that create new opportunities for new business models new technologies to be deployed very quickly um uh you know and, and entirely new needs of society to say like at mass surveil um viruses to surveil um pe individuals health um and so on so i think that there, there are lots of opportunities in the long term in general you know biotech is always an area with with great fundamentals so as a business, I think like it's still going to say it's still going to stay a strong area um, for investment. But you know, of course, I'm speaking on the yearly timescales or decade timescales. You know, I think the next few months are going to be tough for everybody. We largely echo that sentiment here at Alix. Um, agree that the the next few months here are going to be tough. Um, we kind of boiled down the whole crisis into the, the statement that we're all uncertain for how long we're uncertain for, and that's given some people, as you said, kind of that conservatism mindset they've adopted in the short term, but. In the long term, as venture investors here, we invest over um, over decades, and our outlook it just means we perhaps get quality companies at cheaper prices here in the short run. Um, but I think that the overall benefits from these crises is that whenever there's a crisis arise, opportunity um, so does too. And we've seen that the FDA has been rapidly approving diagnostics, and that the perhaps it wasn't an innovation problem; it was a market problem. Um, and there's now a further need for rapid diagnostics, particularly in this time of need. Um, that's one of the biggest things we've seen arise from this alongside on the telehealth component, emergency CMS codes be approved and reimbursement for telehealth, the inertia dropped dramatically. Um, and with that, it's going to be pretty hard to walk back once these health systems are now um, involved, kind of their standard of care, their habitual routines, uh, telehealth, some of the components of that. Um, being reimbursement, why it was so hard to do prior, be very tough to walk that back as well. So there's a lot of silver linings to this that perhaps within the healthcare and life sciences ecosystem, uh, inertia has dropped in, at least in these momentary spikes uh, of panic. And um, that might just be the catalyst enough for innovation to jump over these hurdles and on the back end, stay the course and uh, accelerate that delta of adoption. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. 
any closing thoughts, Tony? Well, I think, you know, I think times of crisis, they, you know, they demand personal leadership from all of us. And I think it's, it, in mo for the most part, it's brought out the best in people that I've seen. Um, it's been amazing to see how much people want to collaborate, how many people want to volunteer or help in their community, um, in their families, you know, in, in their companies. And so I would just encourage people to, you know, stay optimistic. Um, you know, if we're properly calibrated to the crisis, like we should be surprised optimi optimistically just as often as we're surprised pessimistically. Um, and so I would say, you know, be clear-eyed and honest about the challenges, um, first to yourself and then to all the stakeholders in your businesses um, and, you know, in, in yourselves, like to your family and, and so on. Make the hard decisions, but do right by people and, and people will remember that. So I, I, I think for, you know, for the most part, everyone's, everyone's embraced that. It's been, it's amazing to see how much the biotech community has uh, volunteered resources, expertise, um, is repositioned projects to work on vaccines, therapeutics, testing. Uh, people have been sharing information freely, which is, uh, you know, extremely surprising and like very encouraging. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just been amazing to see that it really brings out the best of people when we get united against a common enemy. So uh, I hope it's, I hope it's uh, a time where, you know, although we, you know, we're in crisis, like we can look back on it as a time of, of dramatic cultural change as well. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.